Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Oh 
your Bible to Isaiah 59. We are about to encounter Romans 9 through 11. Romans 9 through 11 is not without its controversies. In fact, there are commentaries you can go find that just skip Romans 9 to 11 completely. They make the leap right from the end of Romans 8 right to the beginning of Romans 12 and just pretend that these three chapters don't exist. These three chapters are very difficult for any Arminian interpreter because Paul is going to talk about God's electing grace. If you don't believe that God picks and chooses and elects, then you're going to have a hard time with Romans 9. If you don't believe in a future for Israel nationally, you're going to have a difficulty with Romans 10 and 11. And so oftentimes, especially here among the Reformed of us, we have an a priori position in so many circles that says that God has finished his dealings with Israel and that he is not going to keep the promises he made in the Old Testament to Israel, that those promises are now being fulfilled in some spiritual sense within the church. And that would be undermined if you just simply read Romans 10, Romans 11. So you just have to skip it. You just have to eliminate it. You just have to ignore it. I was watching a lecture last night because that's what I do. My fun-filled Saturday evenings at home with my lovely wife, who's not here because she's still hacking up a lung, she and I sat watching theological lectures last evening, and I heard a concept that I really like. So I'm going to pass it on to all of you, which is there are two ways that people approach the scripture. The first way that people approach scripture is with what I just called an a priori position. They start with their theology. In reform circles, they start with their creeds. They start with the confessions. And once they have that fully formed theology, they bring that to the scripture and then read the scripture through the filter of the theology that they already formed before they got to the scripture. The lecturer I was listening to last night called that the top-down approach. He said the top would be starting with your theology, you work your way down to the Bible. The opposite way of approaching the Bible is to read it for what it actually says, read it at face value, read it as literally as humanly possible, and then build your understanding and your theology from the Bible up. He called that the bottom-up approach. And you know that's the approach that we try to take here. Rather than starting with any system, rather than starting with a hermeneutic, rather than starting with an a priori position, we start with, well, what does the Bible actually say and then we build our theology based on that. Now, what the Bible is actually going to say, Old and New Testament, we're going to look at it this morning, it's going to say that Israel 
has really rebelled against God terribly. And it's going to say that God is going to forgive Israel and that God is going to reestablish Israel and that God is going to gather Israel. And that is said in the Old and the New Testament. So if we're going to be consistent with our bottom-up approach, then we're going to take what the Bible actually says about Israel, and as we develop our theology, we will include the reality that God is going to be faithful to Israel. Now, from a completely theological standpoint, you know that I've said through the years, and will say again even now, you want God to be faithful to Israel. Amen. The reason you want God to be faithful to Israel is because you want God to be faithful to you. You want to know that whatever God says, he says it emphatically, he says it eternally. He makes his promises based on his own name and his own character, and he doesn't change, and therefore God does not ever rescind any promise he makes to anybody, and you want that to be the way he is. Now, I heard a preacher gosh, I'm going to say 30 years ago, who posited the notion that when God said things like election, when he said things like eternal, when he said things like everlasting in the Old Testament, that he actually meant something different than when he uses those same words in the New Testament. Because he wanted to hold on to the idea that when God makes us promises, he means it. When he says everlasting, when he says election, when he says that he's forgiven us completely, this pastor wanted us to believe that we could trust those promises. But then when people would point backwards to the Old Testament and say, well, what about the fact that God has made everlasting, unconditional promises to Israel, he ended up saying, Those words meant something different back then. Now, you're all kind of chuckling at me as I say that. There is a very well-known, reformed guy on the Internet. If I said his name, you'd all say, oh, yeah, him. He says repeatedly, and I've heard it in so many of his eschatological sermons, he is a post-millennial guy. And he says that the Old Testament is a dress rehearsal for what God was later going to do in the church. That's the language he uses. So whether I'm talking 30 years ago or whether I'm talking about the sermons I heard this week, that notion that in the Old Testament God was using language that is similar to the New Testament but he didn't mean it the same way or that God's dealings with Israel, though they were unconditional and everlasting, changed somehow, or to say that that was just a dress rehearsal for what God was later going to do in the church, any of that language is a negation of what the Bible actually says. And the reason people are comfortable speaking that way is because they've started with a top-down theology. They've started with their ideas and then read those ideas into the text. But you won't find anywhere where any New Testament writer, author ever says that the promises made unconditionally to Israel are now being satisfied or fulfilled in the church. You won't find that. 
So you have to form that idea, form that theology outside of the Bible, and then impose those concepts onto the Bible. That's that top-down theology thing. We don't do that. We just read what the Bible says because we actually do believe that it is the very word of God. I'm sorry, if that's for me, tell them I'm busy. What we're going to look at first is a section from Isaiah where Isaiah is going to describe Israel's absolute rebellion against God. I mean, it's bad. And then at the end of the chapter, just just turning on a dime, we read, and God is going to send them a redeemer. And God is going to deliver them. In other words, the very theology that we believe as sovereign grace people, that all men are sinners, the very theology that we've seen in the book of Romans so far, that all humans are depraved, there's none that does good, no, not one, that we are all sinners, but then we are saved anyway by the grace of God who interrupts our life for no other reason than his good pleasure. That's the salvation language that we find in the New Testament where we're concerned, but we're going to see that same language today where Israel is concerned, that they're really bad, really bad. And then God promises them redemption and salvation. Paul picks up the language of this very chapter and imports it into Romans 11. That's not by mistake. He knows what he's doing. He knows that this is the chapter where Isaiah has decried the fact that Israel is evil and rebellious and turning their back on God. He knows that, but he also knows that this is the chapter where Isaiah prophesies that God is going to forgive Israel. So when Paul's talking about Israel in the book of Romans, he goes right to this chapter. So I thought we'd start the morning by looking at this chapter and ask the question, what does this chapter say? And I'll tell you in advance what it says. It says, Israel, bad, God, forgiving. And who does God forgive in this chapter of Isaiah? He's forgiving national Israel. How is he forgiving them? By sending them a redeemer. A redeemer comes to Israel, to Mount Zion. That same language, that same concept, that same quote is carried into Romans 11 while Paul is talking about God's dealings with Israel. Why? Because Paul is reaching back into the very thing that he said is God breathed, the word of God And he is then saying, the God-breathed word of God says this, God is going to save Israel. And this is the passage that causes Paul to say, and so all Israel will be saved. So let's read it for what it says, starting at chapter 59. Fairly long chapter, I'm going to have to read fairly quickly, but you're going to get the idea. It won't take a whole lot of commentary on my part, despite all the commentary you've gotten so far. It won't take a whole lot of commentary to understand that Isaiah is saying, Israel, bad. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save. That's the concept of this whole chapter. 
God can save no matter how bad Israel is, no matter how bad Micah is. No matter how bad anybody is, God's hand is not so short that he can't get to whatever sinner he wants to get to. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, neither is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities, Isaiah, a prophet to Israel, speaking to Israel, says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers are defiled with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one sues righteously. That's a word for pleading. No one pleads honestly. They trust in confusion and they speak lies. They conceive mischief and they bring forth iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. An adder is a poisonous snake. They hatch adder's eggs and they weave a spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies. And from that which is crushed, a snake breaks forth. Their webs will not become clothing, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and their acts are acts of violence. An act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil. They hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Devastation and destruction are in their highways. They do not know the way of peace. There is no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked. Whoever treads on them does not know peace. Therefore, justice is far from us. And righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold, darkness we hope for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in twilight. Among those who are vigorous, we are like dead men. All of us growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. We hope for salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, God. And our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us. And we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning away from our God. Speaking oppression and revolt. Conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words. And justice is turned black. And righteousness is far away. The truth has stumbled in the street. And righteousness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking. And he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. Now the Lord saw... And it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one who could intercede between God and man. 
so then his own arm brought salvation to him. Do you understand what Isaiah is saying so far? He's saying Israel, everybody in Israel, every resident of Israel, bad. Constantly bad. Nonstop bad. Continually bad. God looked at their evil and he was astonished that there was no one, no priest, no righteous man, no one who could intercede between evil Israel and righteous God. So what did righteous God do? The common top-down theology says what God did was to cast off Israel for their sins and replace Israel with the church. That he looked at Israel as a dress rehearsal for what he was going to later do in the church. That's the common theology. What does the Bible say, though? The Bible says the exact opposite of that theology. What the Bible says is God, seeing that there was nobody who could intercede, decided that his own arm would bring salvation to himself. He would save people himself. He would accomplish for Israel what Israel could not accomplish. They had never done it. There was nobody to do it. There was nobody to intercede. So God decided he would do it himself. And how did he do it? By sending a redeemer to Israel. Verse 16, his own right arm brought salvation to him. His own righteousness upheld him. Why was God so interested in bringing salvation and righteousness to himself through Israel? Why didn't God just cast them off entirely? The answer is because he had made everlasting promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were still the recipients of promises that when we get to Paul's writing in the book of Romans, he's going to say that the promises of God, the calling of God, are without repentance. God does not change from that. God does not turn his back on any promise he's ever made. So God made an unconditional promise to Israel. And he's going to make sure that he keeps that promise to Israel. How? By bringing righteousness to himself by himself. By bringing salvation to Israel by himself through himself. He's going to accomplish it all. Now, doesn't that sound awfully darn Calvinistic? I mean, that's the very theology we believe. That's the very theology of sovereign grace that we adhere to. And that's the very theology of Isaiah where Israel is concerned. So now, how should we develop our theology? Should we start top down with a theology that says, oh, but the creeds. Oh, but the confessions say that God is done with national Israel, that he has saved a small remnant out of Israel, and any Israelite that wants to come to Christ can be saved when they become part of the church, but that God is currently and forever dealing with the church and only the church, and therefore national Israel is completely done for. Is that the way we should work? 
Absolutely not. We shouldn't start with a priori positions and then read those positions down into the scripture. Rather, we should look at what the scripture says and build our theology from that, the bottom-up theology. And the bottom-up theology from this passage is exactly like the bottom-up theology that we find in the New Testament. So is it true that when God says words like everlasting and election in the Old Testament, he means something different than he means in the New Testament? No, absolutely not. It's the same God using the same language, developing the same methodology to save people, whether Old or New Testament, whether Israel or the church. It's still the same God doing the same thing. I'm still just introducing. You getting me so far? Because I want you to understand what Paul's about to say. Because then you'll understand why people skip it. And why people can't deal with it. Let's continue reading in Isaiah because now it gets really good. His own arm brought salvation to him and his righteousness upheld him. And he put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for his clothing. And he wrapped himself with zeal as his mantle. According to their deeds, so he will repay. That's consistent with all the theology we know of the Old Testament. God is going to make Israel pay for all their deeds. But when he does that, is he going to lose them? No, he's going to correct them. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries. Recompense to his enemies. To the coastlands, that's out among the Gentiles, he's going to make recompense. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. That's in the east. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord is driving. Look at verse 20. This is what Paul quotes in Romans 11. And a redeemer will come to Zion. What's Zion? Zion is a hill, a mountain just outside Jerusalem. It became a nickname for Jerusalem. It became a nickname for the kingdom that David ruled over. Zion is Jerusalem. It's unquestionable that Isaiah predicts there is a redeemer coming to the sinful people of Zion. And to those who turn from their transgression... In Jacob. Who's Jacob? Israel. Israel. Okay, so now i got to ask, how clear is that language? How precise is that language? There's a redeemer coming to Zion, and he's going to take transgressions away from Jacob. Paul's going to pick up that exact quote, carry it into the New Testament, and use that as the basis, as the foundation for his argument that God is going to be faithful to national Israel. As for me, says God, this is my covenant with them. Does God break covenant? 
Oh, he's a covenant-keeping God. His covenant with them, with Jacob, with Zion, is this. My spirit, which is upon you, and my words, which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. But it's okay because when he says the word forever in the Old Testament, he means something different than he means when he says forever in the New Testament. I don't buy that at all. I buy that a consistent covenant-keeping God can say, this is my covenant with Israel. This is my covenant with Jacob. I'm going to put my spirit on them and I'm going to put my words in them. And they're going to speak my words out of their mouth, not just them, but their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. And it's going to keep going forever. Okay, now the tough question. Has that happened yet? No. Is it going to happen? Yes. Has to. It has to happen because Isaiah predicted it in the Old Testament. But then Paul picked it up after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And writes it to the Roman church as his defense that God is still faithful to everything he ever promised to Israel. So it is a consistent Old Testament, New Testament promise of God's faithfulness to Israel. And as I keep saying, you want God to be that faithful. Because you want him to be faithful to you. Thus endeth the introduction. Turn to Romans 9. I am telling the truth. Paul, at this point, having already written as much as he's written, already telling us that everybody, Jew and Gentile, is sinful, and then explaining to us the gospel of the finished work of Christ, and how only by looking to Christ and faith in him can you have salvation, that the works of the law aren't going to do it, even he himself. He says of himself that where he would do good, he doesn't find the ability. Instead, he finds in himself a law of sin in his members. And who is going to deliver him from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ. It all comes back to Christ every time. And then he has just said to us in chapter 8, he has dropped on us the idea of predestination. Whoever God foreknew, those people that he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And then goes on and says, furthermore, those same people whom he foreknew, whom he predestined, those are the people that he called. And those are the people that he justified. Those are the people that he glorified. Having said that, he has laid out the foundations of what election is. In chapter 9, he's going to start demonstrating that that's how God has always worked. That God has always chosen and elected, and he's going to demonstrate it and prove it from the Old Testament. In fact, he's going to prove it from the earliest parts of Genesis. He's going to prove that God always picked and chose which way the promised seed was going to go. So election then is a foregone conclusion. It's not something that he invented. It's not a novelty from Paul. It's not something unique to the New Testament 
or unique to Paul. It's something that permeates the scripture. That's what he's about to demonstrate. You can find commentaries. And, uh, and I've been reading a lot of commentaries lately. And, and I conclude the very same thing that Elder Ward concluded years ago, which is that it's amazing how much light the Bible can throw on some of these commentaries. Because there are several commentaries that imply that at Romans 9.1, Paul has written almost like a parenthetical thing that goes on until the end of chapter 11. And during that parenthesis, he's talking about something completely different than what he was talking about through the whole rest of the book. And that's completely wrong. He has already introduced the idea of God sovereignly <laughs> picking and choosing. And now he's going to continue clarifying what that election looks like, and that it's always been the way that God has worked even with Israel. But then Paul is also going to have to address the question in the first century, which is, well, you're saying that God sovereignly picks and chooses people, and that's how people are saved. What about Israel? What about the fact that they do have promises from God, and yet the vast majority of them appear not to have recognized their own Savior. What about that? What about that, Paul? What about your theology of, of sovereignty and choosing and foreknowledge? And yet, what about Israel? So he is going to address that, and he's going to start by saying, I wish that my kinsmen, Israel, were all saved. I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Now, the only reason Paul would say that is because he knows what he's about to say has a bit of controversy behind it. He knows that people are arguing and discussing what about Israel. And so he's saying, now, look, I'm about to say some stuff that you all are going to wrestle with. And in fact, later he's going to say, and then you will say to me, how is that fair? So he knows, he's presupposing that the questions are coming. So he starts out by saying, I'm telling you the truth in Christ. This is what I know through Christ. I'm not lying. I'm not making this up. I'm not fabricating anything. My conscience bears me witness through the Holy Spirit of God, that what I'm telling you is the absolute truth. And I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Well, why, Paul? Why are you so sorrowful? Where is this grief coming from? Verse 3 tells us, For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now he's going to define for you who these kinsmen are in verse 4. Who are Israelites? Okay, is there any question about who he's talking about? <laughs> my heart longs for Israel. My heart longs for my brethren after the flesh. Now, I don't mean to get too pedantic about this, but for heaven's sakes, the Pauline attitude post-death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, post-Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, 
his attitude is, I long for the salvation of Israel. The top-down a priori position in so much of the Reformed Church is, God gave up on Israel and so do I. And then they say, I'm Pauline. If you were truly Pauline, if you're genuinely Pauline, then you understand that God's dealings throughout the Bible, certainly throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, is all about Israel. That's undeniable. And then your introduction into the grace in which you stand right now is because God brought you against nature into promises and covenants that weren't yours historically, naturally, genetically. None of it belongs to you, and yet God, by grace, allowed you to be a part of it. But get this right, it belongs to Israel. And at no point did God ever say, it doesn't belong to Israel anymore, it's yours now. Instead, the consistent theology throughout the Bible is It belongs to Israel. Paul's about to say it. It belongs to Israel. You, by grace, have been brought into what is naturally Israel's. You get that? Yes, sir. In fact, Paul is going to say later, don't you unnatural branches, you Gentiles that have been grafted in to Israel stuff, don't start boasting, he says, against the natural branches. Because even in his day, that was the natural tendency. Gentiles would start thinking, well, God cut off Israel to make room for me. But Paul's going to explain why God is doing what he's doing. And it is not because of you. It's because of him. That's why he brought salvation himself. That's why he brought righteousness himself. God is in the enterprise of glorifying Himself. And Paul is going to say at the end of Romans 11, that's what he's doing. So now, have we adequately defined who the Israel is that Paul is talking about? Yes. Because he's going to keep using that word through Romans 9, 10, and 11. He's going to keep using that word in all his writing. He's going to keep saying Israel, 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 Israel. And yet, you can go read commentary after commentary that says when you get to Romans 11, by the time you get to all Israel will be saved, that's the church. Except that Paul has now defined who the Israel is that he's talking about. And nowhere in Romans 9, 10, or 11... Nowhere between Paul's introduction and definition of who Israel is and his final conclusion that all Israel is saved, nowhere in between there does he change the definition. If the definition changed, it would be incumbent on Paul to tell us that. Okay, I just used the word Israel, but I meant church. The church existed when he was writing this. He's writing to the church in Rome. If he means church, he needs to tell somebody he means church. But the a priori, top-down theology of so much of the Reformed Church says that the definition changed. You can't find that in the text, which is why I keep pounding away at we have to start from the bottom up. We have to start with the text, build our theology from there, and if you do that, you can't find any change in the definition of the word Israel. Am I alone up here? Are you interested in this, or am I just talking to myself? Okay. 
because we can get somebody up here tap dancing for you if this isn't doing it for you. Josiah, you should see him tap dance. I mean, that boy, he, never mind. It turns out I am alone up here. I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom, to Israel, belongs the adoption as sons, and to whom belongs the glory and the covenants. Of course, those all belong to Israel. Name a covenant in the Bible that doesn't belong to Israel. Name one. Go ahead. You can't do it. Abrahamic covenant, that's Israel's. Unconditional, by the way. Through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And I'm going to bring your people to this land and give you this land in perpetuity. That's a forever promise, not based on any condition on the part of Abraham. It's passed on from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. That is Israel's promise. Davidic covenant? That means the son of David is someday going to rule over the collective 12 tribes of Israel. The law? How much have we pounded on the fact that only Israel was at Mount Sinai? They're the only ones that had to follow the conditions of that covenant. The new covenant, Jeremiah 31, where the new covenant is introduced, begins with this covenant is made between God and the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And then it's quoted in Hebrews 8, the longest verbatim quote carried over from the Old Testament into the New Testament and the writer of Hebrews, a Hebrew writing to Hebrews, accurately quotes it as a covenant between God and the house of Israel and the house of Judah. There's not a single covenant in the Bible that doesn't belong to Israel. So if you're in covenant with God, that's because God brought you into a covenant that already belonged to Israel. You just by grace have been brought into it. So it all belongs to them. The adoption of sons, the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises. He's going to spend a lot of time talking about promises. You need to know what he means when he says promises through Romans 9, 10, and 11. Those promises belong to the fathers. That's what it says at the beginning of verse 5. The temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers? And from whom, Israel, the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever, amen. Through Israelite flesh, the Hebrew Messiah came. Now, do you understand that Paul is being very, very clear to say it all belongs to Israel? And the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, those promises have not been rescinded and they belong to Israel. Have I pounded this into your head enough yet? It all belongs to Israel. You can't escape it. You can't get away from it. It all belongs to Israel. And if God has, by grace, introduced you into some of those covenants or promises, that's just God being good to you. But if you start thinking that because God introduced you into those covenants, that means that he has rescinded that covenant from Israel, you're, what's that word, wrong! 
because the Bible is very clear, very repetitive, very constant, that it all belongs to Israel. Okay, now have we defined pretty well who Israel is? Because in verse 6 it says, it's not as though the word of God has failed. That's Paul replying to apparently what was the common controversy. What about Israel? What about Israel? They have all these promises. They have all these covenants. And through them the Messiah did come. And yet they're the ones that rejected their Messiah. They're the ones that hung him on the cross. They're the ones who are still following the law and not following after faith. They're the ones who have been scattered. They're the ones who ultimately, as of 70 AD, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. Their temple's going to be destroyed. And they're going to be dispersed from their land. What about Israel? Paul's going to answer that question. Turn to the end of Romans 11 for a moment. Go to Romans 11, verse 25. Paul's going to introduce a mystery. Mysterion in the Greek, it means some previously unrevealed truth. It's a reality, but it wasn't revealed to people until Paul revealed it. I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery unless you become wise in your own estimation. What's one of the chief sins that I keep talking about, one of the sins that has been carrying on ever since Eden? We sinners become egocentric. We start thinking that we're self-sufficient, that it's all about us. And he says, you're going to become wise in your own conceit unless you understand this mystery. I don't want you, brethren, to become uninformed or ignorant of this mystery, lest you become wise, clever, smart in your own head, a legend in your own mind. Lest you be wise in your own estimation, here's the mystery, a partial hardening has happened to Israel. What does that mean? He's still talking about Israel, national Israel. But he's explaining that the reason that Israel didn't recognize their savior, the reason that they are still not in faith is because God has judicially hardened them. Now, over the next few weeks, as we continue reading through 9, 10, 11, you're going to see Paul use examples of judicial hardening. For instance, he's going to say that God hardened Pharaoh. And then he's going to say, God has mercy on who will have mercy and whom he will, he hardens. Knowing that God has the capability to either enlighten or harden, now that that's established theologically by Paul, he now says, here's the mystery. It's not that Israel is done away with. It's not that God has said, well, there's nothing I can do with them. In fact, it is God that is responsible for the fact that they don't believe. And there's a reason for that. Don't be uninformed of this mystery. Unless you become wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until, until, that, that until means God is accomplishing something. When that's accomplished, that partial hardening is going to be changed. Until what? 
until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There's where you are in the equation. God knows the exact number of people he is elected, predestined, determined. He knows the exact number of people that he is giving to his son for his son's glory through all of eternity. And once he has filled up that exact number with all those exact people whose names he's written down before the foundation of the world, once the last of those people is brought into faith, then the fullness of the Gentiles has in fact come in. And then, verse 26... All Israel will be saved. Now I have to ask again, has the definition of the word Israel changed? It's amazing what people do when they read the Bible. They'll read verse 25 that a partial hardening has happened to Israel and they say, that's Israel. That's national Israel. That's the people of Israel. And thus all Israel will be saved. That's the church. That's talking about the church right there. That's the church. No, he's talking about national Israel in both parts of the sentence. The definition hasn't changed, and in fact, it's one continuous sentence. He hasn't even broken into a new thought. I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed or ignorant of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and thus, all Israel will be saved. What's your evidence, Paul? What are you basing that on? How do you get to say Israel is hardened? God has hardened them partially. Yes, there are some believers in Israel. The early church was all Israelites. And so, yes, there are believing Israelites. But then there's this hardening going on in Israel. And then they're all going to be saved. How do you get away with saying that? He goes exactly to what we've just read from Isaiah 59. Why? Because he's convinced that the prophecy of Isaiah 59 is still good. That Israel is bad, bad, bad. And God, for his own sake, for the sake of the promises that he's made, is going to bring righteousness to Israel for his own sake. Thus all Israel will be saved just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Who's Jacob? Just so we're clear. It's Israel. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Does it sound like Paul expects that God is going to take away the sins of erring Israel? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. You can't get anything else out of that. The only way you can get anything else from that is to start with a top-down theology where you say, well, my theology says, my hermeneutic says, my creeds say that God is done with Israel and now dealing exclusively through the church. And therefore, I can't allow that verse to say what it says. But that's why I adhere to the bottom-up theology-building process where we start with what the Bible actually says. And what it says, Old Testament and New, is that a deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Israel. That's after the death, burial, and resurrection. That's after the Holy Spirit has come at Pentecost. This is church age stuff. Paul still expects that what Isaiah prophesied concerning Israel 
is true and going to happen. So what should our attitude be? We should certainly believe the same thing. Which is why Paul could say, I could wish myself accursed because I have this great love and compassion for my fellow kinsmen who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the promises and the covenants and the law. It's all theirs. And I can't wait until they come to the fruition of everything they've ever been promised. I can't wait. So what's our attitude? Keep reading. Just so that you really do understand that he's talking about national Israel, hardened national Israel. He then says in verse 28, as touching the gospel, as touching all that good news that we've been reading out of Romans, as touching the reality that every man is a sinner and that coming to Christ through faith is the way to salvation, as touching the gospel, they are enemies. They're enemies of the gospel. Now, by the way, let me throw this in theologically. If, in fact, all Israel being saved refers to the church, then Paul just said that the church is enemies of the gospel. That doesn't make any sense. He has to be talking about national Israel. From the standpoint of the gospel, they, hardened Israel, are enemies of but look at the next word, for your sake. Who's your in that sentence? Paul is writing to Gentiles, explaining to the Gentile contingent in Rome that Israel has been hardened because that's a benefit to them. This is all God's plan. God has worked all this out in advance. He knows what he's doing. He's hardening Israel so that he can bring in Gentiles like you and I. But from the standpoint of God's election, God's choice, they, hardened Israel, are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the promises that have been made to them, the covenants, unconditional covenants that have been made to them. For the sake of them, hardened Israel is still beloved by God. So then shouldn't the church loving hardened Israel shouldn't that be our attitude considering it's the Pauline attitude and apparently the God attitude perhaps our attitude should not be to say well God is done with them now look I'm going to say something right now that's controversial I know it's controversial and I'm going to say it anyway and if you tar and feather me in the parking lot afterwards so be it the first several hundred years of the church's existence, the primary belief was in a future for Israel. The primary theology where Israel was concerned was that God was going to reestablish them because that's what the Bible says. But then over the course of the church's history, there have been several attempts to erase that concept. Uh, during the time of Augustine and his following the method of origin and doing a whole bunch of allegorizing that led to amillennialism. That's where amillennialism gets its start. 
And that all occurred, that all happened because of a political uprising in North Africa. Jump forward a thousand years, and another event happened that changed how the church looks at Israel. The early church believed in a future for Israel. But there's an event in the course of church history that turned that on its head where the primary theology became God's done with Israel. And that event was the Protestant Reformation. That's a tough one for us. Because we believe in the soteriology of the Protestant Reformation. We would agree with that. But go back and read the Reformers. Like it or not, they were anti-Semitic. All you got to do is read Luther to have some idea how true that is. And that anti-Semitism led to their theology, led to their eschatology, led to their feelings and writings about a future for Israel. So they couldn't allow what we've just read to say what it says, so instead they had to start creating top-down theology. They had to start creating a priori positions that people would have to adhere to to be truly reformed. Now, because I do believe in what the Bible actually says, and so I believe in a future for Israel, and you know what? It doesn't matter what I believe. It only matters what the Bible says. And the Bible says future for Israel. And so when I say that, when I preach that, people bring out the pitchforks and say, dispensational! Because they want so badly to impose a top-down theology on me. And I don't do any of that. I'm not dispensational. I'm not covenantal. I agree with the soteriology of the Reformation, but let's be honest, nobody agrees with everything the Reformers said. In fact, it's an impossibility. I have had people tell me they believe everything the Reformers taught. You can't. Because the Reformers argued amongst themselves about communion. And how frequently and whether the body and blood of Christ was actually real and present in the elements or whether they were just symbolic. Go back and read Zwingli arguing with John Knox defending Luther's view. Go go read. They don't agree. So you can't agree with them across the board. We all have disagreements with the reformers. From the Protestant Reformation, a soteriology of salvation by grace without works arose. I agree with that 100%. They also imported, here comes the controversy again, they also imported their historically Catholic amillennialism into their top-down theology. And in order to be consistently reformed today, you have to believe in covenantal millennialism, and you have to believe God is done with Israel. I don't. I believe what the Bible says. You got that? Yes, sir. Anybody want to tar and feather me for any of that? Oh, not for that? <laughs> not for that? <laughs> no, for, for other stuff, yeah. 
For instance, the tap dancing offer. Yeah. Look, from the standpoint of the gospel, they, hardened Israel, are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Why? Verse 29, get this right, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And I said earlier, you want God to be like that. You want, when he promised you salvation, for nothing to be able to interrupt that, nothing to be able to change that. Paul has already said back in Romans 8, we read it last week, he's already said, who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justified, it's Christ that died, yea, that is risen again. We love that stuff. That means, okay, our salvation is irrevocable because God promised it to us. All right, good. Well, Paul just said that theology also applies to Israel and the promises and the covenants and the everything because it all belongs to Israel and all the scriptures and all the law and all the prophets, it all belongs to Israel and the promises, it all belongs to Israel and the those promises are without revoking. They can't be changed. They can't be altered. They can't be stopped. Or else God changed his mind. And you don't want God to change his mind. What he was doing with Israel was not a dress rehearsal. What he was doing was faithfully exactly what God has always done which is choosing people, saving people, redeeming people, making covenants, making promises to people, and bringing righteousness and salvation to himself because none of us could do it. Same God, same process. Then Paul's going to get into theology that we will get into someday whenever we get to Romans 11 as we work our way verse by verse through this whole section. This is really all just an introduction to chapters 9 through 11. But he's then going to say, look, you used to be disobedient. So big deal, Israel's disobedient. You're saying God is done with Israel because of their disobedience. You were disobedient. And yet God saved you. God shut them all up, hardened them into disobedience, says Paul, so that he can show mercy to everybody. Why are you in covenant, in promise from God? Mercy! He was merciful to you. He was kind, good, generous to you. Why is Israel going to one day have the satisfaction and fulfillment of every promise and covenant that God ever made to them, not because of them, but because God is going to bring salvation and righteousness by his own arm, and they're going to be the recipients of it because he's showing mercy. He showed mercy to you. He's showing mercy to Israel. That's the way God works. That's the way God is. Get used to it. And build your theology accordingly. Got it? Got it. Are there questions about that? Okay, now, for those of you who picked up one of the uh, bulletins by the front door, you'll see that after the sermon here, we're going to sing a song. And then Micah will come forward with the prayer request and the closing prayer so that we can all be dismissed, which means musicians, wherever you are hiding, 
You can come up here and man your instruments. Or woman your instruments, depending on your gender. Dwayne, did you have your hand up? This was kind of an introduction to Romans 9, 10, 11. Yes. So, There is. No, I'm done. There's nothing to come later. No. <laughs> right. Right. No, it's because they really hit on us hard. Okay. Yes, I agree with you. There are big time allies soteriologically. But then they would call us out as not truly reformed because we see a future for Israel. Which isn't even really eschatology. It's, it's biblical theology of God's consistency to the promises he's made. So it gets into the character of God, the nature of God's promises, more than just eschatology. There are big-time allies on soteriology. Yes, they are. Massive amounts of enemies with us soteriology. Right. And so are you going to get to that? Yeah. Okay. If you want to stay here a few more hours, I can get to all that. Okay. <laughs> Any other questions? No? All right then. Uh, turn to 42 in your hymn book, and we're going to sing a song. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let's sing. Stand up and sing.
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.